we thank you for your word. It is a light unto our path. It's a lamp to our feet. We we have discernment to know how we might live because you have revealed to us your will. And I pray that you would not just give us clarity and understanding uh, this letter to Sardis, but that you would also see help us see specifically how you want us individually to apply it and even how we might apply it as a church. Lord, because we want to be faithful. We know we have many areas that we need to grow, and so we need discernment to know what is your will, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so pray that you would encourage my brothers and sisters' hearts here through your word. You would challenge us where we need to be challenged so that we might walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin actually by reading Ecclesiastes 7.1. In that verse, Solomon makes this perplexing statement. He says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. And Solomon's point here is that dying with a good reputation is actually better than being buried with honor. That's what precious ointment refers to. And and that dying and leaving this world with a good reputation is better than entering into this world with just high expectations and ambitions that never actually come to fruition. In other words, that the way we finish is actually far more important than how we start. And how many how many athletes do we know that at the beginning of a season will boast about their greatness and everything they're going to accomplish, and then as the season goes on, only one athlete actually gets the MVP. The same is true of teams. Teams can boast about how great they're going to be, but all that matters at the end is who is the one that's carrying the trophy at the end of the season. Again, what matters is not what people expect or what people project. What matters is actually what takes place. Performance. Reputation is not enough to win championships. And and the same is true spiritually speaking. And when Jesus presents the church of Sardis with their performance evaluation here, he notes that their name or reputation doesn't line up with the reality of their performance. They have a good reputation as far as churches go, but they're virtually dead. And as you know, the dead don't accomplish much, let alone achieve victory or nike, as the word is used here. They don't overcome. And there are essentially three parts to his evaluation. He gives his assessment, an exhortation, and a consolation. And remarkably, he doesn't actually give any commendation to this church. In fact, he goes right to the heart of the message he wants to present to them. In verse 1, when he writes... To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He was the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. He's saying, I know you have a great reputation, that other churches think very highly of you, but I know the truth. You are a sham. The fact that Jesus begins by noting that he knows their deeds suggests that at least initially the church was faithful. 
that initially the church had devoted itself. And apparently on account of their early faithfulness, they believed at this point they had risen to a manner of maturity, at least that they could now just take it easy. But it's this very choice to relax in the work of ministry that actually leads to their spiritual effectiveness coming to a halt. And to use Christ's analogy here, they're virtually on life support as a church. Notice that this deadness, as he describes it, is not reflected in the size of the church. It has to do with the work of the church. Jesus doesn't condemn them for losing numbers, but for not doing anything of any substance. And actually, probably given the reputation of this church, it probably was a very large congregation. It just wasn't accomplishing much. And again, this is evidence that just because a person or a ministry appears to be very effective and prominent doesn't actually mean that actually is producing spiritual fruit. Which is why Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And when Jesus says that the church is dead, he doesn't mean that there are no believers anymore in the church. We know this because of what he says in verse 4. He just simply means that there's barely any spiritual good actually being accomplished by the church. They're showing up maybe on Sunday. They might have a number of ministries or programs. They might even uh, even be teaching accurately. But it's not accomplishing much. Even though it has a reputation of being a huge success. In ancient Greece... You might know that victorious athletes were actually presented with a laurel wreath wreath as as a crown uh, to designate that they had accomplished a significant victory. And to rest on your laurels, therefore, came to mean that athletes would get lazy because of what they had previously achieved in one of their races or or fights or uh, Olympic events. And in basking in the memories of their former glories, they they, they didn't put forth any effort and they would get defeated. And the the English word for this that we like to use is complacency. The definition of complacency, according to Webster's, is a calm or secure satisfaction with oneself or one's lot, accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. So... Again, it's, it's a calm or secure satisfaction with oneself or one's lot accompanied by an unawareness of actual dangers of, or sufficiencies. It's, it's confidence that you've arrived when the reality is that you're in, you're in peril. And so what produces complacency? Well, actually, the, the, the source is actually found in the definition itself. It comes from having a sense of arriving, assuming that our work is finished, And not continuing to press on, not continuing to work. And both individual Christians as well as churches can fall into complacency. Now, obviously, none of us have arrived spiritually. And frankly, until every member of the body of Christ has come to spiritual maturity, until every member loves 
God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, the work isn't finished. And again, the work of the the church is not just simply evangelism. It's not just simply going out and proclaiming the gospel. In fact, when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he said, go into all the world, baptize. But then he says, and then teaching them all that I've commanded. So even if we had reached all the elect, there's still a lot of work left to be done as we seek to bring everybody to maturity in Christ. And the complacent Christian or the complacent church, it's like that, that kid in the nursery who, when it's time to clean up the toys, you know, maybe puts his toy back and then goes into the corner and eats goldfish or plays with another toy while everybody else is doing the work. And if you ask him, well, why, why aren't you helping out? They just said, well, I did my part. What the kid misses is well, the goal was not just for one toy to get put, it's to get the, all the toys picked up. Or you could use a, a battlefield analogy. You know, a, a group of soldiers, a unit goes out and they, they fight a battle and one of the soldiers decides, okay, I did my part, I'm going to go home, go back to the barracks, sleep, play video games, while the rest of the army is out fighting, even the men in his unit. And when questioned, he says, well, I did my part. I've already put my life in danger. But in saying that, he would just express that he actually does, he's forgotten the mission is not just going out for one battle, it's to win the war. And as long as the war is going... He should be involved. And the same is true spiritually speaking. We're not just called to fight one battle or a few battles, but the goal is to see every member grow into Christ's likeness. And the church in Sardis's complacency has them practically being overrun with only a few members of the church remaining spiritually alive. And so what should they do? Well, Jesus' exhortation to them consists of five commands. The first is, he says, wake up. In other words, be on the alert. So this is, this is a picture of a, of a sleeping man rousing himself from his slumber because danger is at hand. In fact, Peter uses the same word in 1 Peter 5.8 when he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour. Be on the alert. You're going to die if you're not on the alert, if you don't take this threat seriously. In fact, Jesus repeats the command three times when he warned his followers about the last days. He says this in Mark 13. And it's relevant, right, because Revelation is about the last days. He says in 13, verse 33, be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake and That's essentially what he's telling the church of Sardis. You need to not just stay awake, you need to wake up because you're almost dead. And they need to begin, therefore, to just recognize their spiritual condition. They need to recognize they're almost dead. In their slumber, they're sleeping sleeping to death, so to speak. And so secondly, not only do they need to recognize their perilous condition, they need to strengthen what remains. Pictures like uh, in one of those movies, 
where there's been an attack and like everybody's left unconscious and then like one person kind of rouses themselves from their unconsciousness and they realize, oh, everybody's in danger. And they go and they find all the people who still have a pulse and they brag, you know, grab them out of the building or whatever until they're they're safe. It, it, he, everybody else is knocked unconscious and, and one or a few people are just left awake. He says, strengthen them. That means make steadfast, firmly root, bind up. The, the idea is like tying a knot tighter so it doesn't come loose. So you think of like a, like a sail on a ship. You know, the sail's going to be tied down tight in the midst of a storm. It needs to be, they need to be strengthened. It's the same word. And in the Bible... This strengthening refers to those whose faith has been weakened because of trials or because uh, just a, a, a lack of spiritual nourishment. For instance, Hebrews 12, 12, you know this. The writer says, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. And it's, it's, he's referring to the body of Christ. Care for one another, strengthen one another. Peter likewise writes, After you've suffered a little while, so the context is suffering, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And remarkably also, after the the trauma of uh, Christ being crucified and the disciples seeing him not only captured but then hung on a cross, Jesus told Peter, foreseeing that this would happen, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. It is, he knows that trial is going to just going to cause them to crumble. But now when Peter comes to his senses, when he wakes up to what he's done, that he would be about strengthening his brothers in their faith. So that they all would be on the alert. Knowing Satan's on the prowl seeking somebody to devour. And notice that the goal of this strengthening is to complete their deeds. Strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. The point is there's still work to be done. There are some people who are still not Growing up into Christ-likeness. There are elect ones, possibly, that still have not yet been reached in the region of Sardis. The members, therefore, need to be strengthened again so that this work can be completed. And the church in Sardis has fallen into the same complacency as, as the exiles during the, uh, after they came back from Babylon. You might recall that uh, after they returned, they began to rebuild the temple. And then they stopped midway through. Because they got distracted. And they began focusing no longer on building the temple, but actually in making improvements to their own homes. If you, actually, if you turn to Haggai, chapter 1, like right out of the, at the very beginning of this prophecy, Haggai addresses this, this problem. It says, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, beginning verse 2, Haggai 1, verse 2. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of Yahweh. Then the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. 
Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says Yahweh of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says Yahweh. You look for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares Yahweh of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. God says that that because Israel has prioritized their own personal interests above God's glory, he has brought all these trials into their life to wake them up. To help them realize that they're focused on vanity and to stir them up to finish the job. It's the same thing with the church in Sardis. And so the third command Jesus issues really is just for them to remember. Remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. They remember what they've been taught from the word of God, right? What they've received and heard. Again, this tells us that in the past, the church had been faithful. They'd received good teaching and embraced it, but but somewhere along the way, they just began to grow dull. Either they they stopped hearing good teaching, so the the fault was in the leadership, or maybe they just stopped uh, uh, seeking to apply what they had taught. Or maybe they just stopped listening. We don't know precisely what went wrong, but, but we see the cataclysmic effects. They're virtually dead now. And therefore, the fourth and fifth commands Jesus gives are connected to this one to remember what they've been taught. He says, keep it and repent. The word keep, again, it just means to guard, to protect, like putting sentries or guards on duty to protect a barracks or a prison or a treasure. Notice how Jesus uses the word a few verses later in uh, Chapter 3, verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Right? Because he's telling uh, the church of Philadelphia, because you have kept my word, I will keep you. You've protected my word, I will protect you. So how does a Christian keep or guards God's word? Well, the implication in verse 3 is that they obey it. We keep, we protect God's word by actually applying it, doing what it tells us to do, taking it seriously. Pastors are called to to guard God's word and elders by uh, rightly dividing it and, and making sure it's not twisted or applied incorrectly. And the application of the word of God here, it was clearly missing in this congregation. That's why Christ tells them that they need to repent. They need to take action. The, the word, uh, the Greek word is metanoia, right? Where 
the primary Greek word for repentance. And it, it refers to a change in thinking that results in a change in action. So both need to be necessary. And this is, I think, a good example of what theologians call sins of omission. People tend to think of uh, sins as actions we commit, bad things that we do. But it can also be just failing to obey commands that we've been given. Sins of omission. For example, if a mom asks her son to finish the chores, his chores, and he doesn't obey her, he's not doing what he's been told. The son might not like the chores. He might not see any benefit in it. He might not feel like it. He might be tired. There could be a lot of reasons why he chooses not to do his chores. But the fact of the matter is, he didn't do what his mom asked him to do. It was a sin of omission. In applying this principle to the church, the author of Hebrews writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. Although the church in Sardis had gained a reputation for being faithful to Christ's instructions early on, their faithfulness had essentially ground to a halt. So Jesus issues a severe warning in verse 3. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. If the church chooses to just keep on sleeping, doesn't take this warning seriously, Christ says, I'm going to come and I'm going to to deal with you. Now, he doesn't specifically explain what that's going to look like. Simply that he'll come unannounced and unexpectedly like a thief. And, And that should be enough because... The verbiage shows that uh, he knows what, they've, what has already been revealed to them. They need to take seriously the, the truth that they've already received. Right? That, that, that which he spoke in Luke chapter 12. He's referring to about his, the return of the Son of Man coming like a thief in the night. Right, go ahead and look there at that passage. Its relevance is, is quite remarkable. Luke 12, verse 39. I'll read through verse 48. Be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? In other words, Peter's like, should I be threatened by your return? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom the master will give, put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming. And begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with unbelievers. 
And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. Notice that Christ is primarily warning the disciples here. He addresses unbelievers in verse 46. They'll be given, he'll be given an allotment with unbelievers because in not doing any work, he just proved himself an unbeliever. So he will give an allotment with the unbelievers. But he's referring to believers in verses 47 and 48. Right? The servant who knew his master's will. So this brings up the question then, if there's this, it's going to receive a, a flogging, well, what does that mean? And what does that, how, does this, how do we compare what Jesus says here in this parable to Romans 8.1? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Well, Romans 8.1 still holds true, but, it, but I believe that condemnation uh, refers to they're not going to hell. And this, these servants won't. They won't be given an allotment with the unbelievers. And ev- we know everybody deserves hell, right? The wages of sin is death. They're not getting what they deserve. But they're also not being commended for their lack of faithfulness. They will still receive a, a severe judgment. And that judgment will be according to the faithfulness, their faithfulness to do what God had commanded them to do. As, as Paul said in, Corinthians, said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So it's not just, I'm going to give you commendation for all the good things that you do, and I'm just going to forget the evil. No, you are going to get what you deserve for the evil that you did. Especially if you knew it was evil. Even if you didn't know it was evil, you'll get some punishment. It just won't be as bad as if you knew what you were doing was evil and still did it. But you will get, you will be judged and receive by our Lord judgment based upon goodness, the good things you've done, and the bad things that you've done. Therefore, he says in verse 11, knowing the fear of the Lord. Like Paul is not enthusiastic about this. It terrifies him that he's going to have to give an account, not only for his own life, but for the account of everybody he was responsible for. Which is why the author of Hebrews says, please obey and submit to your leaders because they have to give an account for you. Just as Adam had to give an account for his wife, who was the one that decided to have the conversation with Satan. Adam was held responsible. Likewise, the leaders were held responsible for the work of the church. Husbands for their wives. Paul for those whom he had shepherded. And many Christians assume that Christ is just going to declare to them after they uh, rise from the the grave or when they see him, after they, they die, that he's going to say to every single Christian, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, that phrase comes from the parable of the minas and the talents. It's two times it comes up. And, in, and the point of both of those is the only people who receive that commendation are those who actually were faithful. He doesn't tell the unfaithful servant, well, well done, good and faithful servant. He says, no, you're going to be cast out with those who are weeping and gnashing with teeth. In fact, the unfaithful servant in those parables is rebuked. He says, I tell you, 
that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. For even those believers who were unfaithful, he says, you're not getting any reward. And clearly in this parable, the judgment that the disciples receive will be based on how they live according to what they knew to be the master's will. And this is why Jesus says, wake up, I'm coming, and when I come, that's it. If you have not done what I've asked you to do, it won't go well for you. And especially it won't go well for your leaders. In fact, the same warning is given later in Revelation 16, right before the battle of Armageddon. Christ intercedes in the midst of this narrative in Revelation 16. And he says, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and seen exposed. So, again, Jesus doesn't give any sort of threat to this church except I'm coming and you don't know when. So strengthen that which remains. And then he says this in verse 4. He offers some consolation. And I don't mean consolation as, as speaking words of comfort, but, but more in the sense of giving a consolation prize. Right? That's the prize that you give to the person who didn't win so they don't feel too bad. Right? It, it, really, this is like a boss who calls his uh, you know, poor employee into his office uh, to give him notice that, that this is going to be his last day of employment. He's going to fire him. But as he's having the conversation with his employee. He recalls that, well, you know what? There was actually... One task he actually did okay on. And based on that one task, he decides, okay, I'm going to give him just one chance. Because he's proven he can at least do one thing right. Right? It's a consolation. And Jesus is saying, you're virtually dead. But because there is a few of you left that aren't dead. He's not saying there's a few of you left who are doing great. He's just saying there's a few of you who aren't dead. You have a few Again, that again, not many. And this idea was probably a large, reputable church with a great following, a great reputation. And the consolation Jesus gives is, is that there are a few hangers on. And he describes them specifically as those who have not soiled their garments. And his point is that there's only only a few. Christians left in Sardis who have not been corrupted by the world. That's what the imagery of a soiled garment reflects. Uh, James writes in James 127, Religion that is pure and undefiled before the God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and this is often what's forgotten in this verse, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is a big deal because later on, James writes in chapter 4, verse 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? If you're a friend of the world, you are at war with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be the friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James 4, 4. And this is why Paul commands 
Christians in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't let the world affect what you're doing at, at home, at work, and especially in the church. And those few believers who keep themselves unstained by the world, Jesus says, they will continue to walk with him in white for all eternity. And notice what he says after he says, for they are worthy. Again, we all know none of us is worthy to enter heaven. Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus' point is, is not that they deserve to be saved from their sins, but rather they are living as those who actually have been saved from their sins. Their lives are, are uh, conforming to a, uh, what you'd expect one who has been sanctified, one who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's what you'd expect them to live like. Right? As, as he writes in Ephesians 4.1, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul says in Philippians 1.27, Only let your manner of life, life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Colossians 1.10, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul writes the first, in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so you can see that the expectation is you should walk as one who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You shouldn't look anything like the world. And those people who have, who have not been tarnished by the world, who don't look anything like the world, are those who will continue to walk in white. And Jesus' point here in Revelation is that these handful of people in Sardis who haven't fallen asleep in their worldliness have walked in a manner worthy of the calling. He says, therefore, when they stand before the judgment seat, they're not going to be ashamed. Again, look at the, look at the verbiage there. It's powerful. I will confess his name before my Father and before His angels. When that day comes, I will confess His name. Or again, alluding to the fact that they have a name, they have a reputation, Jesus says, I will give you a reputation. In fact, I will proclaim how worthy you are before God the Father and before all His holy angels. I'll announce it. Now, that, when you get an endorsement by the Son of God Himself, that is a trustworthy endorsement. I mean, there is no greater prize anybody can receive than for the Son of God to say, He is worthy, she is worthy to wear white and to bear the crown. Because they've kept themselves unstained by the world. They have been faithful. And it just shows us the only reputation that matters is, is the one that Christ will declare. Right? If this church, if, if they want a name, they need to wake up and they need to finish the work that Christ has called them to. It's not enough to just have a reputation if that reputation is empty. And it's also just as encouraging. You might not have any reputation 
But if on that day Christ says, you are worthy, who cares what anybody has ever said or thought? Let's pray. Father, we don't want to be unfaithful servants and we certainly don't want to be an unfaithful church. And Father, it's, it's often, it's just hard to know often what it is that we need to be doing. Lord, help us to see where, where it is in our lives individually and as a church what we're not doing and how to get, how to wake up the church in America and in, in grace and truth wherever we're asleep. I pray that you'd stir us up and you help us to stir one another up towards love and good deeds that, that this church would receive commendation when the time comes for us to be judged by you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.